This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 10 The False Photographer when, as lately, events have happened that seem to the fancy, at least, to test, if not stagger, the force of official government, it is amusing to ask oneself what is the real weakness of civilization, ours especially, when it contends with the one lawless man. I was reminded of one weakness this morning in turning over an old drawer full of pictures. This weakness in civilization is best expressed by saying that it cares more for science than for truth. It prides itself on its methods more than its results. It is satisfied with precision, discipline, good communications, rather than the sense of reality. But there are precise falsehoods, as well as precise facts. Discipline may only mean a hundred men making the same mistake at the same minute and good communications may in practice be very like those evil communications which are said to corrupt good manners. Broadly, we have reached a scientific age which wants to know whether the train is in the timetable, but not whether the train is in the station. I take one instance in our police inquiries that I happen to have come across, the case of photography. Some years ago, a poet of considerable genius tragically disappeared and the authorities or the newspapers circulated a photograph of him so that he might be identified the photograph as i remembered depicted or suggested a handsome haughty and somewhat pallid man with his head thrown back with long distinguished features colorless thin hair and slight mustache and though conveyed merely by the head and shoulders a definite impression of height. If I had gone by that photograph, I should have gone about looking for a long, soldierly, but listless man with a profile rather like the Duke of Connaught's. Only as it happened, I knew the poet personally. I had seen him a great many times, and he had an appearance that nobody could possibly forget, if seen only once. He had the mark of those dark and passionate Westland Scotch who before Burns and after have given many such dark eyes and dark emotions to the world. But in him the unmistakable strain, Gaelic or whatever it is, was accentuated almost to oddity, and he looked like some swarthy elf. He was small, with a big head and a crescent of coal-black hair round the back of a vast dome of baldness. Immediately under his eyes, his cheekbones had so high a color that they might have been painted scarlet. Three black tufts, two on the upper lip and one under the lower, seemed to touch up the face with fierce mustaches of Mephistopheles. His eyes had that dancing madness in them which Stevenson saw in the Gaelic eyes of Alan Breck. But he sometimes distorted the expression by screwing a monstrous monocle into one of them. A man more unmistakable would have been hard to find. You could have picked him up out of any crowd, so long as you had not seen his photograph. 
But in this scientific picture of him, twenty causes, accidental and conventional, had combined to obliterate him altogether. The limits of photography forbade the strong and almost melodramatic coloring of cheek and eyebrow. The accident of the lighting took nearly all the darkness out of the hair and made him look almost like a fair man. The framing and limitation of the shoulders made him look like a big man, and the devastating bore of being photographed when you want to write poetry made him look like a lazy man. Holding his head back as people do when they are being photographed or shot, but as he certainly never held it normally, accidentally concealed the bald dome that dominated his slight figure. Here we have a clockwork picture, begun and finished by a button and a box of chemicals, from which every projecting feature has been more delicately and dexterously omitted than they could have been by the most namby-pamby flatterer painting in the weakest watercolors on the smoothest ivory. I happen to possess a book of Mr. Max Beerbohm's caricatures, one of which depicts the unfortunate poet in question. To say it represents an utterly incredible hobgoblin is to express in faint and inadequate language the license of its sprawling lines. The authorities thought it strictly safe and scientific to circulate the poet's photograph. They would have clapped me in an asylum if I had asked them to circulate Max's caricature. But the caricature would have been far more likely to find the man. This is a small but exact symbol of the failure of scientific civilization. It is so satisfied in knowing it has a photograph of a man that it never asks whether it has a likeness of him. Thus declarations, seemingly most detailed, have flashed along the wires of the world ever since I was a boy. We were told that in some row Boer policemen had shot an Englishman, a British subject, an English citizen. A long time afterwards we were quite casually informed that the English citizen was quite black. Well, it makes no difference to the moral question. Black men should be shot on the same ethical principles as white men. But it makes one distrust scientific communications which permitted so startling an alteration of the photograph. I'm sorry we got hold of a photographic negative in which a black man came out white. Later we were told that an Englishman had fought for the Boers against his own flag, which would have been a disgusting thing to do. Later it was admitted that he was an Irishman, which is exactly as different as if he had been a Pole. Common sense, with all the facts before it, does see that black is not white and that a nation that has never submitted has a right to moral independence. But why does it so seldom have all the facts before it? Why are the big aggressive features, such as the blackness or the Celtic wrath, always left out in such official communications, as they were left out in the photograph? My friend the poet had hair as black as an African and eyes as fierce as an Irishman. Why does our civilization drop all four of the facts? Its error is to omit the arresting thing, which might really arrest the criminal. It strikes first the chilling note of science, demanding a man above the middle height, chin-shaven, with grey moustache, etc., 
which might mean Mr. Balfour or Sir Rebder's Buller. It does not seize the first fact of impression, as that a man is obviously a sailor or a Jew or a drunkard or a gentleman or a black or an albino or a prize-fighter or an imbecile or an American. These are the realities by which the people really recognize each other. They are almost always left out of the inquiry. The Sultan There is one deep defect in our extension of cosmopolitan and imperial cultures. That is, that in most human things, if you spread your butter far, you spread it thin. But there is an odder fact yet, rooted in something dark and irrational in human nature. That is, that when you find your butter thin, you begin to spread it. And it is just when you find your ideas wearing thin in your own mind that you begin to spread them among your fellow creatures. It is a paradox, but not my paradox. There are numerous cases in history, but I think the strongest case is this, that we have imperialism in all our clubs at the very time when we have Orientalism in all our drawing-rooms. I mean that the colonial ideal of such men as Cecil Rhodes did not arise out of any fresh creative idea of the Western genius. It was a fad, and like most fads, an imitation. For what was wrong with Rhodes was not that, like Cromwell or Hildebrand, he made huge mistakes, nor even that he committed great crimes. It was that he committed these crimes and errors in order to spread certain ideas. And when one asked for the ideas, they could not be found. Cromwell stood for Calvinism, Hildebrand for Catholicism, but Rhodes had no principles whatever to give to the world. He had only a hasty but elaborate machinery for spreading the principles that he hadn't got. What he called his ideals were the dregs of a Darwinism which had already grown not only stagnant but poisonous, that the fittest must survive and that anyone like himself must be the fittest that the weakest must go to the wall, and that anyone he could not understand must be the weakest. That was the philosophy which he lumberingly believed through his life, like many another agnostic old bachelor of the Victorian era. All his views on religion, reverently quoted in the Review of Reviews, were simply the stalest ideas of his time. It was not his fault, poor fellow, that he called a high hill somewhere in South Africa his church, it was not his fault, I mean, that he could not see that a church all to oneself is not a church at all. It is a madman's cell. It was not his fault that he figured out that God meant as much of the planet to be Anglo-Saxon as possible. Many evolutionists, much wiser, had figured out things even more babyish. He was an honest and humble recipient of the plodding popular science of his time. He spread no ideas that any cockney clerk in Streatham could not have spread for him. But it was exactly because he had no ideas to spread that he invoked slaughter, violated justice, and ruined republics to spread them. But the case is even stronger and stranger. Fashionable imperialism not only has no ideas of its own to extend, but such ideas as it has are actually borrowed from the brown and black peoples 
to whom it seeks to extend them. The crusading kings and knights might be represented as seeking to spread Western ideas in the East. But all that our imperialist aristocrats could do would be to spread Eastern ideas in the East. For that very governing class which urges Occidental imperialism has been deeply discolored with Oriental mysticism and cosmology. The same society lady who expects the Hindus to accept her view of politics has herself accepted their view of religion. She wants first to steal their earth and then to share their heaven. The same imperial cynic who wishes the Turks to submit to English science has himself submitted to Turkish philosophy, to a wholly Turkish view of despotism and destiny. There is an obvious and amusing proof of this in a recent life of Rhodes. The writer admits with proper imperial gloom the fact that Africa is still chiefly inhabited by Africans. He suggests Rhodes in the south confronting savages and Kitchener in the north facing Turks, Arabs and Sudanese. And then he quotes this remark of Cecil Rhodes. It is inevitable fate that all this should be changed and I should like to be the agent of fate. That was Cecil Rhodes' one small genuine idea, and it is an oriental idea. Here we have evident all the ultimate idiocy of the present imperial position. Rhodes and Kitchener are to conquer Muslim Bedouins and barbarians in order to teach them to believe only in inevitable fate. We are to wreck provinces and pour blood like Niagara, all in order to teach a Turk to say Kismet, which he has said since his cradle. We are to deny Christian justice and destroy international equality, all in order to teach an Arab to believe he is an agent of fate when he has never believed anything else. If Cecil Rhodes' vision could come true, which fortunately is increasingly improbable, such countries as Persia or Arabia would simply be filled with ugly and vulgar fatalists in billycocks, instead of with graceful and dignified fatalists in turbans. The best Western idea, the idea of spiritual liberty and danger of a doubtful and romantic future in which all things may happen, this essential Western idea Cecil Rhodes could not spread, because, as he says himself, he did not believe in it. It was an Oriental who gave to Queen Victoria the crown of an empress in addition to that of a queen. He did not understand that the title of king is higher than that of emperor. For in the East titles are meant to be vast and wild, to be extravagant poems, the brother of the sun and moon, the caliph who lives forever. But a king of England, at least in the days of real kings, did not bear a merely poetical title, but rather a religious one. He belonged to his people, and not merely they to him. He was not merely a conqueror, but a father, yes, even when he was a bad father. But this sort of solid sanctity always goes with local affections and limits, and the Cecil Rhodes imperialism set up not the king but the sultan 
with all the typically Eastern ideas of the magic of money, of luxury without uproar, of prostate provinces and a chosen race. Indeed, Cecil Rhodes illustrated almost every quality essential to the Sultan, from the love of diamonds to the scorn of woman. The Architect of Spears The other day in the town of Lincoln, I suffered an optical illusion, which accidentally revealed to me the strange greatness of the Gothic architecture. Its secret is not, I think, satisfactorily explained in most of the discussions on the subject. It is said that the Gothic eclipses the classical by a certain richness and complexity at once lively and mysterious. This is true, but Oriental decoration is equally rich and complex, yet it awakens a widely different sentiment. No man ever got out of a turkey carpet the emotions that he got from a cathedral tower. Over all the exquisite ornament of Arabia and India, there is the presence of something stiff and heartless, of something tortured and silent. Dwarfed trees and crooked serpents, heavy flowers and hunchbacked birds accentuate by the very splendor and contrast of their color the servility and monotony of their shapes. It is like the vision of a sneering sage who sees the whole universe as a pattern. Certainly no one ever felt like this about Gothic, even if he happens to dislike it. Or again, some will say that it is the liberty of the Middle Ages in the use of the comic or even the coarse that makes the Gothic more interesting than the Greek. There is more truth in this. Indeed, there is real truth in it. Few of the old Christian cathedrals would have passed the censor of plays. We talk of the inimitable grandeur of the old cathedrals, but indeed it is rather their gaiety that we do not dare to imitate. We should be rather surprised if a chorister suddenly began singing Bill Bailey in church. Yet that would be only doing in music what the medievals did in sculpture. They put into a miserary seat the very scenes that we put into a music-hall song. Comic, domestic scenes similar to the spilling of the beer and the hanging out of the washing. But though the gaiety of Gothic is one of its features, it is also not the secret of its unique effect. We see a domestic topsy-turvydom in many Japanese sketches. But delightful as these are, with their fairy treetops, paper houses, and toddling infantile inhabitants, the pleasure they give is of a kind quite different from the joy and energy of the gargoyles. Some have even been so shallow and illiterate as to maintain that our pleasure in medieval building is a mere pleasure in what is barbaric, in what is rough, shapeless, or crumbling like the rocks. This can be dismissed after the same fashion. South Sea idols with painted eyes and radiating bristles are a delight to the eye, but they do not affect it in at all the same way as Westminster Abbey. Some again, going to another and almost equally foolish extreme, ignore the coarse and comic in medievalism and praise the pointed arch only for its utter purity and simplicity, as of a saint with his hands joined in prayer. Here again the uniqueness is missed. There are Renaissance things, such as the ethereal silvery drawings of Raphael. There are even pagan things, such as the praying boy, 
which express as fresh and austere a piety. None of these explanations explain. And I never saw what was the real point about Gothic, till I came into the town of Lincoln, and saw it behind a row of furniture vans. I did not know they were furniture vans. At the first glance, and in the smoky distance, I thought they were a row of cottages. A low stone wall cut off the wheels, and the vans were somewhat of the same color as the yellowish clay or stone of the buildings around them. I had come across that interminable eastern plain which is like the open sea, and all the more so because the one small hill and tower of Lincoln stands up in it like a lighthouse. I had climbed the sharp crooked streets up to this ecclesiastical citadel. Just in front of me was a flourishing and richly colored kitchen garden. Beyond that was the low stone wall, beyond that the row of vans that looked like houses, and beyond and above that, straight and swift and dark, light as a flight of birds and terrible as the Tower of Babel. Lincoln Cathedral seemed to rise out of human sight. As I looked at it, I asked myself the question that I have asked here. What was the soul in all those stones? They were varied, but it was not variety. They were solemn, but it was not solemnity. They were farcical, but it was not farce. Was in them the thrills and soothes a man of our blood and history that is not there in an Egyptian pyramid or an Indian temple or a Chinese pagoda. All of a sudden the vans I had mistaken for cottages began to move away to the left. In the start this gave to my eyes and mind I really fancied that the cathedral was moving toward the right. The two huge towers seemed to start striding across the plain like the two legs of some giant whose body was covered with the clouds. Then I saw what it was. The truth about Gothic is, first, that it is alive, and second, that it is on the march. It is the church militant. It is the only fighting architecture. All its spires are spears at rest, and all its stones are stones asleep in a catapult. In that instant of illusion, I could hear the arches clash like swords as they crossed each other. The mighty and numberless columns seemed to go swinging by like the huge feet of imperial elephants. The graven foliage wreathed and blew like banners going to battle. The silence was deafening with all the mingled noises of a military march. The great bell shook down as the organ shook up its thunder. The thirsty-throated gargoyles shouted like trumpets from all the roofs and pinnacles as they passed, and from the lectern in the core of the cathedral. The eagle of the awful evangelist clashed his wings of brass. And amid all the noises, I seemed to hear the voice of a man shouting, in the midst, like one ordering regiments hither and thither in the fight, the voice of the great half-military master-builder, the architect of spears. I could almost fancy he wore armor while he made that church, and I knew indeed that under a scriptural figure he had borne in either hand the trowel and the sword. I could imagine for the moment 
that the whole of that house of life had marched out of the sacred east alive and interlocked like an army. Some eastern nomad had found it solid and silent in the red circle of the desert. He had slept by it as a world-forgotten pyramid, and had been awoke at midnight by the wings of stone and brass, the tramping of the tall pillars, the trumpets of the water-spouts. On such a night, every snake or sea-beast must have turned and twisted in every crypt or corner of the architecture. And the fiercely colored saints, marching eternally in the flamboyant windows, would have carried their glorioles like torches across dark lands and distant seas, till the whole mountain of music and darkness and lights descended roaring on the lonely Lincoln Hill. So, for some hundred and sixty seconds, I saw the battle beauty of the Gothic. Then the last furniture van shifted itself away, and I saw only a church tower in a quiet English town, round which the English birds were floating. End of section 10